Section 19 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 Charles and Clarendon, Part 5. In the midst of the wild rout of the court, there remained one infinitely pathetic figure, such as we have seen her, possessing no quality of mind or person which could attract him charles's wife was for a short time free from absolute insult it amused him to teach her to say a few words like a parrot you lie was her first english to him when with delicate raillery he had laughed at her for thinking herself with child it was not long however before he began the breaking-in process by forcing upon her the insolent presence of the reigning prostitute as lady of her bedchamber that Clarendon should have yielded at length to Charles's passionate insistence, and consented to take his part in this brutality, comes upon us as a shock at the end of his honourable career. Insignificant and helpless as Catherine was, she had the feelings of an honest woman, and the scene which took place, a scene to which Balzac alone could have done justice, was perhaps the most disgraceful of charles's private life but after that though she has spirit enough yet seeing that she did no good by taking notice of it she forbears it in policy and then the real pathos of the situation is felt the queen begins to be brisk and play like other ladies and is quite another woman it may make the king like her better and forsake his other mistresses she rapidly adapted herself to the situation cutting her dress immodestly low and indulging in unseemly frolics in the streets she even aspired to lead fashion by wearing the skirts short to show the feet and ankles and the other day charles wrote to his sister my wife made my lord aubigny and two others of her chaplains dance country dances in her bedchamber her excessive bigotry gave him an opportunity for a piece of careless indulgence pray send me it is as if he were speaking of a child whose whims should be consulted or disregarded as best suits the convenience of the elders some images to put in prayer-books they are for my wife who can get none here i assure you it will be a great present to her and she will look upon them often for she is not only content to say the great office in the breviary every day but likewise that of our lady too and this is beside going to chapel where she makes use of none of these he even seems to have acquired some tolerant affection for her for when she was seriously ill he wept by her bedside a strange but not unfrequent instance of his southern descent but he supped none the less with madame de castlemaine and had his usual talk with mademoiselle stuart on may nineteenth sixteen sixty four and farther than this we do not remember that he permitted his usual habits to be disarranged charles wrote i have been all this afternoon playing the good husband having been abroad with my wife and tis now past twelve o'clock and i am very sleepy while the anglican church was exacting the vengeance she deemed her right for the injuries of twenty years the country was reeling under the stress of a great naval war 
england and the dutch republic were engaged in the second part of that tremendous contest for the commercial supremacy of the world of which the first had been fought out between tromp and blake long before any declaration of war was issued and while all the forms of amity were preserved between the governments the nations themselves had been actually in fierce and incessant strife in every quarter of the globe in the east and west indies in america in the mediterranean and all along the african shore naval engagements on a large scale had taken place fleets of merchantmen had been captured on both sides and ships of each nation which were lying in the ports of the other had been seized as prizes the countries necessarily drifted into formal war the declaration of war on march seventeenth sixteen sixty five was a notable event in the reign for it marked the only occasion upon which charles was in complete harmony with his people the landed gentry and the merchants were alike eager for the struggle while the parliament men would pawn their estates it came to their shirts later to maintain a war and supported their words with the unheard of grant of two million five hundred thousand pounds when charles wrote that he found himself the only man in his kingdom who did not desire war his words were intended for louis the fourteenth and need not be taken seriously everything indeed led him to favour war his private and family feelings were enlisted against the dutch he bore them deep and lasting resentment for their treatment both of himself and of his sister mary during his exile while a constant flow of lampoons and caricatures in holland since his restoration and especially one in which he was represented between two women with his pockets turned inside out added keenness to his longing for retaliation he was anxious to restore the young prince of orange his nephew to the stadtholderate his honour he thought demanded that he should be hostile where cromwell had been in alliance and he hoped that a war would unite parties at home and that he would be able to fill his purse with the liberal supplies given by parliament nor was he likely to be deterred by the remonstrances of the dutch ambassador who with a plentiful lack of humour represented that the prayers put up for him in holland would have to cease he replied that he was not much interested in the prayers of a country which permitted the publication of lampoons there is no doubt that the attraction which everything connected with salt water possessed for charles had much to do with his pleasure at the prospect of watching a naval war on november fifth he took to comminges the french ambassador with him to sheerness to see the launch of a man-of-war of twelve hundred tons burden and he then carried out a joke of the kind in which his soul most delighted an excellent lunch was served on the royal yacht charles drank the health of louis and de comminges that of charles both were honoured with so many guns and so much noise that the weather changed while we were thus carousing the sea became rough and completed what the wine had begun the queen who was on the river with the ladies escaped the sickness all the rest were less lucky as was only too apparent the queen went home with the coaches prepared for the king but he who was greatly amused at seeing the others discomposed did not care to allow us to do the same not content with this he made the miserable de comminges 
get up at five in the morning to go with him to Chatham, to see six vessels, or rather six war-machines, the finest and largest to be seen at sea. Charles had but one anxiety. He knew that by a treaty of 1662, Louis was engaged to help the Dutch if hostilities broke out, and if they were the attacked party, and he was anxious to avoid this complication. Louis was equally desirous to avoid being compelled to waste the strength which he was storing up for his intended attack upon the Spanish Low Countries, upon a war for which he had no heart. For the success of that attack, he knew he must neutralize the certain opposition of the English nation, and to that end he must secure the friendship and the personal cooperation of the English king. Already before December 1664, Charles had offered to refrain from all hindrance to his design if he would throw over his treaty and refuse to help the Dutch on the ground that they, and not England, were the aggressors. In reading the letters which passed at this time between Charles and his sister Henrietta, who was the confidential secretary of both monarchs, it is not easy to settle whether questions of imperial policy such as these, or the new fashion of waistcoats lately introduced into France, occupied the chief place in Charles's mind. Louis did his utmost first to induce Charles to stop short of hostilities, and then to avoid his treaty obligations. When he failed in both efforts, he declared war against England in January 1666. But the conduct of the French showed how little their sympathies lay with their nominal allies. The troops which Louis sent to help the Dutch against Charles's strange and picturesque ally, Bernard van Galen, Bishop of Münster, a prelate in his naturals rather made for the sword than the cross, behaved as if they were in a hostile country. They pillaged the people and insulted their religion. They openly cursed the Dutch cause, and they drank publicly in the marketplace of Maestricht to the healths of the King of England and the Bishop of Munster. At sea the squadrons of Louis were carefully kept back from assisting the Dutch fleets, and it was evident that at the first opportunity the two crowns would come to a perfect understanding. This opportunity, we must here anticipate for a moment, came at the beginning of 1667, when England, torn, bleeding, and utterly weary of the war, prayed Charles, in the Speaker's address on January 18th, to make peace. In February, he secretly sent Lord St. Albans, the German of former years, to conclude an engagement on the basis that England should form no connection with the House of Austria during that year, while Louis was to support all Charles's designs in or out of the kingdom. The final form which the agreement took was a mutual pledge not to enter into any alliance contrary to the other's interests for a year, an engagement by Louis to keep his fleets in harbour, and the promise of Charles to allow him a free hand in the Spanish Low Countries. This was the first of those private arrangements with France which represent Charles's personal share in foreign policy to the end of his reign. It was kept from the knowledge of his ministers, and was contained only in autograph letters from both monarchs to Henrietta Maria. England had entered upon the great contest with a light heart and full assurance of success. 
even admiral lawson asserted that according to an eye of reason and of god says amen to it the dutch are not able to deal with our master the king of england in the beginning of may sixteen sixty five in spite of chaos in the admiralty a fleet such as had never before been gathered together one hundred and nine large vessels with thirty of smaller size manned by twenty-one thousand men armed with forty-two hundred guns and largely commanded by old commonwealth captains who had learned the art of sea warfare with blake sailed under the command of james rupert was to have led them but he was accounted an unlucky man on june third took place the first battle off lowestoft resulting in a victory for england which might well have seemed crushing but an unexpected ally appeared to sustain the dutch four days later came the hottest day in london that pepys had ever known and the red cross was on the doors that week there died one hundred and twelve of the plague the next seven hundred by september twentieth the official weekly mortality showed more than tenfold that number there was no heart for farther effort and the dutch again asserted their supremacy a fresh fleet sailed from holland in the midst of the stormy season to challenge their foes wherever they might be found the challenge was not taken up london was panic-stricken by her affliction and sixty ships lay inside the thames in sullen inactivity the dutch returned to their own shores without firing a gun by may sixteen sixty six the country had rallied sufficiently to send out another fleet this time monk and rupert confronted de ruyter and tromp and a terrific battle which lasted for four days began on june fourteenth off the dunes the blockhead albemarle who hath strange luck to be loved though he be the heaviest man in the world but stout and honest to his country was a picturesque figure as he walked his quarter-deck in the hottest of the fight phlegmatically chewing tobacco rupert continued to earn his epithet the victory of the dutch was signalized by the slaughter of five thousand english eight ships of the line were sunk and nine more with three thousand prisoners taken but on august fourth another long day of carnage off the norfolk coast gave monk his revenge and a few days later the daring act of a single english frigate and five fire-ships destroyed in one fell conflagration one hundred and sixty merchantmen which were riding at anchor in apparent safety at flea in the entrance to the zyder zee a month later happened the second great national disaster to england and london fuit once more de witt sent out a fleet to seek rupert at the mouth of the thames and once more he found no foe for this charles was directly responsible two more grants had been voted by parliament of sums unheard of before the restoration and yet the treasury was empty on the whole charles had had considerably more than five million pounds for the war he now retrenched expenses in his own way his women never wanted money at one gift lady castlemaine had thirty thousand pounds but he starved the navy to such an extent that england was obliged to act strictly on the defensive the sole office of her warships being to creep along the coast convoying colliers from newcastle to london the country was indeed as soon appeared defenceless 
the enemy can come and cut our throats when he likes wrote one well-informed country gentleman to another peace was clearly a necessity we must have a peace for we cannot have a fleet if the war continued declared sir roger burgoyne which god forbid i am sad to think what will become of us next year may it prove happy to all and let not a sixty-six come these hundred years again but sixty-seven saw greater national humiliation yet in may a conference opened at breda for a long time it was found impossible to come to terms for neither nation had so exhausted the other as to gain the commercial advantages upon which each was bent and charles had gone into the conference strong in his secret treaty with louis in the end de witt resolved upon a stroke which should extort peace on june seventh the sound of guns in the thames was suddenly heard in london sixty-one dutch men-of-war under de ruyter and cornelius de witt were avenging the insult at flea driving the english vessels before them they took sheerness and ascended the river to gravesend sailed up the medway to rochester burned three english men-of-war and captured the royal charles the noble vessel which de comminges had seen launched on july thirty first the treaty of breda was signed its terms were the terms of a drawn battle the great struggle for the command of the sea and the commerce of the world was over for the time only because the combatants exhausted and bleeding needed repose it had decided nothing and left behind it hatred and mistrust though this may end in peace wrote the sagacious temple yet i doubt it will be with so much unkindness between the nations that it will be wisdom on both sides to think of another and meanwhile the king's government as he understood it best had to be carried on the king is always with mrs stuart and sees lady castlemaine only once a week monmouth is spending his time most viciously and idly mrs stuart has her locks done up in puffs the king is mad with mrs stuart who has married the duke of richmond and sent him back his presents lady castlemaine has consequently resumed her sway the king who minds nothing but his lust hath taken ten times more care and pains in making friends between my lady castlemaine and mrs stuart when they have fallen out than ever he did to save his kingdom and to sum up the whole matter there is a lazy prince no counsel no money no reputation at home or abroad so that it is strange how everybody do now reflect upon oliver and commend him what brave things he did and made all the neighbour princes fear him while here a prince come in with all the love and prayers and good liking of his people hath lost all so soon that it is a miracle what way a man could devise to lose so much in so little time but there was a compensation for charles and for all the town the new waistcoats had arrived from paris and little nelly at the king's playhouse pretty witty nell had been discovered and was bewitching all beholders with the piquancy of her acting charles had been every day realizing how narrow were the limits of his freedom except in the domain of pleasure his parliament had been showing itself imbued with precisely the same views as the long parliament of his father except that whereas that had been puritan this was anglican 
its enemies were the same popery military force and an uncontrolled use of the purse by the crown and upon all three points the action of charles had excited keen suspicion and discontent it was largely through that suspicion and discontent aided by the base desertion of the king a desertion less notorious than his father's desertion of strafford only because the circumstances were less tragic and the personages less grandiose that clarendon was now struck down during the years of exile clarendon had maintained his place practically unchallenged because he was indispensable he was equally indispensable and equally unchallenged during the restoration settlement all business as we have seen was left by charles to him or as he himself modestly says to their natural course of god's providence for the present though many do endeavour to undermine him the king though he loves him not in the way of a companion as he does these young gallants that can amuse him in his pleasures yet cannot be without him for his policy and service but clarendon himself had no illusions he knew that in time he would have to yield to the lewd instruments who had only a scurrilous kind of wit to procure laughter and whose skill in mimicry was the best faculty in wit many of them had he had enemies at court said evelyn bitterly especially the buffoons and ladies of pleasure it was not indeed until sixteen sixty six that he began to find himself in direct antagonism with the commons he then incurred their displeasure by opposing as an improper limitation upon the prerogative of the crown the proviso that the supply of one million two hundred and fifty thousand pounds should be strictly applied to the war he incurred it even more when upon offering another still larger grant they demanded a public inspection of accounts his view of the constitution in this respect was precisely what it had been when he served charles i despite the lessons of the last twenty years he declared that this was an encroachment as had no bottom and that the scars were yet too fresh and green of those wounds which had been inflicted upon the kingdom with such usurpations his counsel to dissolve parliament and thus put an end to the antagonism was a farther grievance but it was the knowledge that he was responsible not only for raising troops but for exacting money from the counties for paying them without parliamentary sanction which created so strong a feeling that it was certain that when parliament met in the autumn of sixteen sixty seven he would be impeached it was not the first time that he had excited jealousy on this score after venner's plot it was supposed that he was making that event an excuse for raising an army but the house did in very open terms say they were grown too wise to be fooled again into another army and said they had found how that man that hath the command of an army is not beholden to anybody to make him king throughout these years clarendon was surrounded by enemies lady castlemaine hated him with the hatred of disappointed vanity and avarice not only had he steadfastly declined to court her favour he would not even permit his wife to visit her but he had frequently refused to pass grants for her from the king it was at her house that those nightly meetings were held 
at which a knot of young political adventurers to whose rise the all-absorbing power of the chancellor was an obstacle met to plan his overthrow ashley lauderdale william coventry and henry bennett better known as the earl of arlington who was now secretary of state in the place of nicholas Barclay, who helped bennett to provide for the more intimate pleasures of the king and buckingham for whom clarendon had never concealed his contempt each had good reasons for wishing his fall with these were many like clifford and osborne not yet famous who followed the fortunes of one or other of them the disappointed cavaliers owed him a deep grudge for the indemnity bill and the bill of sales which had balked them of their revenge the catholics hated him as the representative of that anglican triumph which was the chief obstacle of their recognition the presbyterians and other dissenting sects laid their persecution at his door he was disliked by the courtiers for the decency of his private life and for the integrity of his public conduct his daughter's marriage with the presumptive heir to the throne awoke the jealousy of the nobility while the report was industriously spread that he had knowingly chosen for the king a wife whom he knew to be incapable of bearing children the citizens of london were alienated by his haughty reserve he was envied for his wealth he was denounced as the author of the surrender of dunkirk and as the man who had secured most benefit from its sale and all the failures of the war the subject on which he had practically no influence with charles were laid to his account End of section 19